Tech Sounds presents EduTrends. Welcome to the EduTrends podcast and webcast brought to you by the Institute for the Future of Education of Tecnológico de Monterrey. I am Jose Pepe Camilla, Institutes for the Future of Education Associate Director. Today's episode guest is Kearney Brown, Vice President of Impact and Planning for Lumina Foundation. It's a pleasure to have you here, Kearney. Thank you so much. It's, it's wonderful to be with you. Thanks. Uh, why don't you start telling us about Lumina Foundation's work and role? Sure. Thanks. Thanks. Um, so Lumina Foundation is a private foundation in the United States. We formed in about um, the year 2000, and our focus is solely on post-secondary education. Everything beyond high school is, is what we focus on. And specifically in 2009, we set a goal for the nation. And our goal that we set for the nation is that by 2025, 60% of people in the United States will have a degree, certificate, or some other high quality credential. So that's by the year 2025, 60%. Currently, we're at about 52%. But when we set the goal in 2009, we were at 38%. So we've made a great deal of progress, but we still have a ways to go until we get to 2025. Okay. Uh, thanks. Uh, it's a very huge uh, uh, initiative. Um, I would like to know, uh, how do you measure the impact of your initiatives? Yeah, great question. So. At Lumina, uh, we focus all of our efforts, as I said, on post-secondary education. We're really working to change the system. And at the core of, of everything that we focus on is uh, racial equity. We focus our efforts on Black, Latino, Hispanic, and Native American uh, adults uh, in the United States. And so when we set the goal in 2025, the 60% goal, we recognized that we had to hold ourselves accountable and we had to be transparent about where we were or where the nation was in reaching that goal. And so we created something called Stronger Nation. Stronger Nation originally was a 200-page book uh, that had all the data on attainment in the United States that was disaggregated by state, by race, ethnicity, and by age. And so anyone could take the book and, and kind of see where the nation was or look and see where their state was. We recognized that um, it became a lot to mail out every year thousands of these 200-page books to everyone. It also didn't allow us to be more nimble about providing updates to any data. And so right now, anyone can go online to Stronger Nation. If you just look up Stronger Nation, Google Stronger Nation and Lumina Foundation, and you'll see this online tool. And the online tool is really what holds us accountable in measuring progress to the goal. It holds states accountable. It shows where every state is on setting their own goal and the progress they've made toward that goal. So right now, um, 47 states in the United States have set their own goals. And interestingly enough, when we set the goal in 2009, only one state, only Hawaii had a goal for their state. But now we've made a lot of progress in the United States with 47 states having their own goals. So we hold ourselves accountable. We measure our progress to the goal. So we're always paying attention to this. Where are we and what is our progress year over year? 
In addition to just looking at attainment uh, for the United States, we disaggregate that data, as I said, uh, by race, ethnicity, particularly for the three populations we, we care most about. And you can see the progress of each of these uh, populations increasing attainment, but we still see troubling gaps between whites and Asians on one hand and Latinos, Hispanics, Blacks, and Native Americans on the other hand. And so we use these data to better understand where we need to focus our efforts. We need to focus more efforts on increasing participation and persistence and completion for these populations so that we can increase attainment for everyone and reach that 60% goal across the nation. So these are a couple things we do. Another thing that we do um, is it's not sufficient to only look at attainment because attainment is once uh, somebody has that credential. In order to get to the credential, you have to look at those, those measures that lead to attainment. So how many people are enrolling in post-secondary education? But enrollment isn't sufficient because they need to persist and actually complete. So we actually collect data also on enrollment, persistence, and completion for states and for the country, and again, disaggregated by race, ethnicity, to understand these nuances of what's happening. So those are some ways that we keep ourselves accountable and keep the nation accountable and the states accountable and are very transparent on, on where we are. And again, anybody can access it, go in there and you can play with the data. You can compare one state to another. Um, I encourage people to play with it. You can't break it. So let me give you an example of, of some way we are actually using data. So as you may have heard, um, in the last two years, enrollment has fallen dramatically in the United States, actually across the world. But uh, as we look at the United States during the pandemic or since the pandemic began, the United States has lost about 1.3, just under 1.4 million students. That's 1.4 million less students enrolled than we had in 2019. So we paid very close attention to this. Um, obviously, this is, this is a crisis. This plunge in enrollment is creating a crisis in our higher education system. And we have to better understand not only that we see that these numbers are dramatically decreasing, but we have to understand why they're decreasing. So we pay attention to these trends, and then we always dig a little deeper, collecting further research, survey data, whatever it might be, to better understand the experiences of these students. So that's an example of, of kind of how we measure uh, where we stand with the goal, where states stand with the goal, where communities, metro areas, where they stand with attainment, and then use that data to better focus our, our, our work, our efforts uh, in those places. Thank you, Courtney. Uh, an impressive uh, number, 1.3 million students that have left college during the pandemic. Uh, I, I understand that this number is much bigger than the regular number of students that uh, drop uh, out of the colleges in the U.S. in a normal, in any normal year. Yeah. And uh, what, what are the what are the causes of this uh, loss? Uh, what are the biggest reasons for that? Yeah, that's a great question. So we did a, a couple things. So we partnered with Gallup to run some surveys to better understand the student perspective. So what were students saying? Both students that were enrolled uh, and students who never enrolled or students who dropped out 
during uh, during the last two years. And we found some some really interesting things. So first of all, and, and probably no surprise to anybody who watches or pays attention to, to higher education in the US, but cost is an overriding issue. Cost continues to come up and be a barrier to students continuing or, or first time enrolling even in post-secondary education. Again, it's, it's not a surprise, but it's something we have to address. The second thing we found out was a bit of a surprise actually. For students who have considered dropping out over the last two years, over 70% cite stress. Emotional stress is creating an incredible barrier to our higher education students today. And it's something that we need to get a handle on um, before this becomes even more of a crisis and we lose more than our 1.3 students that we've already lost. So those two things were, were definitely the, the top issues that are keeping students from enrolling or making them consider dropping out of, of higher education. Other things that come up are family responsibilities and work obligations. So those are the top four things that, that we found that are really creating barriers to post-secondary education. And I think one of the things that that we really have to think about uh, when we're thinking about higher education, especially in the United States, is we don't take account of who today's students are. So one of the issues that we face is that policymakers in the United States often think of college students as kids. They think of these students as, as people that graduate from high school, and then they go directly into college and they live on a campus in a brick building for four years, and then they graduate. And that's actually not true at all. Couldn't be further from the truth. In the United States, almost 40% of college students are over 25 years old. 42% of college students are, are students of color, Black, Hispanic, Native American, Latino. 64% work. And 40% of that is full-time. So these are students who are not living on campus. They have other obligations. They're older. They may have children that they have to take care of. Uh, they may be taking care of uh, an aging parent. And a third of college students, their families are actually below the poverty level. So when we think about the students, the 1.3 million that we've lost, and the, the millions of other students who drop out every year, we have to really think about the barriers these students are facing. And unless we have policies that really address the cost issues and become much more uh, nimble and flexible to adapt to students who, who are working, who have children, who have other responsibilities, then we're not gonna make higher education accessible to all students. So the, the data that we got about the 1.3 million drop over the last two years isn't surprising given who today's students are. And it's something that we need to make sure that, that more people are informed, more people are aware of who today's students are so we can adapt policies and practices that can better serve those students and get more of these 1.3 million back um, who have dropped out over the last two years. And I'll add one other thing to that, one other data point that um, is another shocking uh, data point. The National Student Clearinghouse uh, a couple months ago released a new report 
on the some college no degree students. So some college no degree students are students who entered um, college at some point to, to get a degree and for whatever reason stopped out. So they began their, their journey uh, hoping to get a degree. And then before finishing that degree, they stopped out and they haven't returned. In the United States right now, that is 39 million adults, 39 million. That's, that's less than one in five adults walking down the street have experienced college, have paid for college and had to stop out before actually receiving a credential. And again, unless we change these policies and, and practices so that we can better serve these students, we're gonna to continue to increase that number of the some college, no degree, and not serve the economic and societal needs that we, we need here in the United States and actually across the world. Thank you, Courtney. So um, access to uh, higher education has always been an issue in several countries, in particular in the United States, uh, higher education is expensive because it's not free as it is in other parts of the world. Uh, like, uh, for instance, in Mexico, there are public universities and private universities. In public universities, it could be uh, almost free. No, So uh, I, I understand that one of the problems is the founding for um, um, paying for these uh, uh, degrees. But nevertheless, in countries like Mexico and Europe, etc., we also have uh, students that uh, drop out no, from the university system. So uh, uh, you will agree with me that is not only what uh, the cost uh, uh, implies no, for, for those uh, uh, non-traditional students you were talking about, but there are many other things. So if we take uh, cost into the equation, but also the other things, uh, how do you think or how Lumina thinks, Lumina thinks that we can make higher education more accessible and more fair for these group students underrepresented in higher education? Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. I mean, there are a lot of barriers that exist currently in the higher education system that, that are keeping these students um, from enrolling or keeping them enrolled. Um, there, there are barriers, you know, we talked about cost. We, we talked a little bit about mental health and that, that stress that, that students are facing and they're not able to find the support they need um, on campus or even before enrolling. Another barrier is just access to mentoring or guidance counselors to help students think about what it um, means to enroll or how they can enroll and how they can stay enrolled. And this is an issue that faces uh, first generation students who may not have access to family members or others who have experienced higher education and don't have another adult they, they can speak to about navigating um, getting into enrolling, getting into college, but also what to do when you're there. Um, they often feel like they're a, a foreigner on the, the campus without access to secret information about what, you know, how it is to be a, a college student. So we have those issues. We also have barriers for, you know, as we talked about, these are adults that are, that are attending higher education and classes may not be offered when they're able to attend because they, they're working. Uh, they may not have access to campus. They may not have transportation or uh, ha stable housing or access to food. So we have to think about all of these things. So a couple of things we need to do. We need to obviously address cost. We need to think about how we can increase access to financial aid opportunities um, for, for, for all students, but particularly those students that don't have access to need-based aid. 
Secondly, we have to think about comprehensive student supports. So this isn't just academic tutoring, but this is access to mental health services. This is access to food banks, um, housing. And, and this is housing not just for traditional age students, but what about those students with children and, and other um, needs that they might have? So we need to think about all of those supports when we think about um, what, a, what a student needs on campus. So those are two things that we need to begin to think about. We also need to re reduce restrictions that some institutions have in being able to serve these students in providing these access to, to care and housing and financial aid. Yeah, very interesting. Uh, are there any um, good examples of uh, universities or states that are doing uh, something uh, to move the needle in the right direction, given this kind of uh, support? You know, I think we saw a lot of great examples during the pandemic. I mean, obviously, that was a stressful time for all, and, and, and it hit institutions hard. Um, but I actually saw a lot of institutions step up to the plate and say, okay, we're going to increase uh, counseling. It may be online counseling, but we're going to increase that to, to all students so that they have somebody that they can reach out to, somebody to reach out to for advising. We also saw them increase access to um, technology. So they created places where students that didn't have access to broadband internet, to Wi-Fi services, could go places um, so that they could log in and, and attend classes or whatever it might be. We also saw access um, to more financial aid and they reduced costs for summer classes, winter classes, whatever it might be, so that students could continue on that journey. My fear is those were band-aids that some states put on or institutions put on and that that is not sufficient. If we're really going to serve these students, we have to not only continue these services, but figure out a way to double down on those services so that everyone continues to have access to them. They have to become part of our ongoing policies and practices because the needs of, of these students and the future students that we have are only going to increase from here on out. So we have to figure out better ways to continue to serve them. So I would just, hope that, that most institutions continue to double down um, so that they can have more success in, in serving all their students. Thank you. It, it, it reminds me of a conversation I had uh, in um, last year with uh, the president of a university in the US. Uh, he told me of a, a case of um, a very brilliant uh, African-American student. Uh, she was a very brilliant high, high school student and they grant her uh, a scholarship in, the, in their university, um, including food and, uh, and uh, um, housing, uh, as well as tuition. And they thought that doing that was enough no, for the success of the student. But there were many, many things related to that, uh, even the way of, uh, um, uh, how you say that in English, to uh, uh, relate to your peers, no? the way mm -hmm. that you relate to your peers um, um, created a shell on her that uh, she was not connecting with the uh, with the students, uh, and these are the kind of things that are very difficult because they're very soft. And most of the time, universities feel they're 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 not they don't they're, they are not working on that field. No, so what I'm hearing from you is that you have to put the student at the center and think of the student 
with the or the needs and the context and the universities have to develop programs to make sure that every student thrives in the university absolutely i mean not that not only that every student thrives but every student feels safe on their campus and they see people that look like them and can relate to them your your example is is brilliant because we find that many students particularly students of color when they're on a campus they don't see a lot of people that look like them um, especially in leadership and in their faculty so institutions need to do a much better job of hiring more diverse faculty more diverse administrators and more diverse leaderships. So when a student comes on campus, they can see people that look like them. They can have mentors there um, and understand that, that they can succeed because of that. We also need to make sure that they feel safe and secure and they see other students that are they're like them and that they're able to participate in um, events that are culturally appropriate to them and they don't feel isolated and they are the only one. As I mentioned, this is a case also of a lot of first-generation students. They arrive on a campus and they feel like they're missing out on some information about what how they're supposed to navigate a campus. They, they don't know, they don't have that family experience that can tell them this is, this is what you should do. So we need more people that are there to help them navigate and, and get through that. I, I would provide another example. Your example was, was very good, but another student that um, we've heard of also received a you know, great scholarship and you know, a brilliant student, um, including housing, food, and, and whatever, and was entering a, um, a, a, a university as a first-time student um, out, of, out of high school. Uh, the problem was this student had a child. And the institution required all first-year students to live on campus. But the campus housing did not include children. So she couldn't bring her child there, but she couldn't enroll as a first-time student. So she couldn't have access to that scholarship um, and couldn't enroll at that institution because a policy required her to live on campus and did not allow her child to, to be with her. We have to be more open to who these students are and the needs that they have and remove some of these barriers that make no sense. Um, she would have excelled at that university and, and been able to do well, but this policy stood in the way of her being able to access it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and for, for these uh, uh, students that come from a background where they're first uh, generation and there's no previous uh, experience in their uh, context, no, in their family, social and uh, social context. Uh, I, I have also found that sometimes uh, when they're working uh, um, and uh, have a family already, uh, prioritizing family is uh, what comes most of the time first. No? So you prioritize buying a house, buying a car, etc. And sometimes it's also because it's difficult for them to uh, uh, explain what could be the, the virtues or the benefits or the or the reasons why they are studying, no? they, they're doing that, particularly in online settings when they're studying online because they don't, don't even leave the house, no? they're, they're on the house. So uh, years ago, I made a, an experiment in an online course that we had where we asked uh, the students to create uh, a network of support. So they, they went uh, to people from their family, work and, and friends, and they tell them why it was important for them to study. And sometimes, sometimes it's what's not about the money, what's about recognition or 
living a dream or a dream of a parent or a family member, uh, and then asking for help uh, when they uh, were um, losing the, their their um, uh, their moral. No, they, mm -hmm. they didn't have a, the the will to continue. Uh, please tell me to continue because I want to do that. So I know that I will have problems and I want you to help me with that. So we created a network of family, friends and people from work. And we sent some uh, just emails at the time, it was uh, years ago, um, telling stories to these members of the network of support of our students. So what we found is that there were some stories, we don't have compelling data on that, but we have some stories of people saying that um, the, the, someone from work uh, helped them with a lot of work when they have an exam or someone from the family understood better that even if they were in the house, they were learning because online learning is one of the problems that you don't go away. You're there on the computer. People don't know what you're doing. Uh, or, or a family member, maybe the mother or one of them uh, loaned some money for something so that they can continue studying. No, but uh, um, this is necessary in those uh, kind of students because they don't have this um, um, recognition of the value of, uh, of uh, continuing studying a degree. That's, yeah, that's brilliant and, and really interesting and, and, and definitely one of the issues. I think that um, we, we don't pay enough attention to how important that supportive network is for a student. Uh, both the professional and, or, I'm sorry, both the personal and the on-campus network. You know, I think we, we all thought, oh, well, the, pro the issue for these, um, these adult students who are working and whatnot is, is they need to have access to online class. If they have online class, they can study whenever, and it's easy, then they have no excuse because they, they can finish. But it's really isolating to just be online. We, we learned that over the last two years. And if the people around you, if your family and your closest friends don't understand what you're doing, uh, it's really hard for that person to continue to sit in their house or wherever it might be, or say they have to go to the library um, when there are all these other obligations. There's children obligations, there's parental obligations, there's you know work obligations uh, and, and to prioritize you know, what, what others may see is just sitting and staring at a screen for an hour is, is really hard for, for people to understand. So I love that idea of how do you encourage um, a personal network of supporters? And I think more institutions also have to help create that network of support. Um, so if the family network isn't there, these students have some other network of support. So being isolated mm -hmm. and just being on the screen all day, again, as we all learned the last two years, is not the answer. Um, there has to be some way where you're interacting with, with your fellow students, with the faculty members um, in, in other ways. Another uh, place where I think that, that students need to get more support is from their employers. Employers need to step up and, and figure out a way to both help support financially, but also to help be part of that supportive network uh, for their employees as, as they pursue whatever credential it might be. Um, obviously, you know, the employer is the one benefiting at the end of the day from their employees getting getting further education and they need to step up and be part of this supportive network also. Thank you. It also remind me of um, um, a university, I think it was in Paris that I went, uh, that uh, they're also, they also had uh, 
faculty members that were first generation that talked to the to students so that they know that there are people in the university. I, I am first generation, for instance, and in, uh, in my family, many people doesn't know. And, and that's also an importance uh, of having these role models and people you can approach to. I, I want to move to uh, back to one number that you gave 39 million of adults with some college and, and no degree. And I, I was uh, thinking, as, uh, as you said, that this is a, a, a big number of people that are not finishing um, a college degree, but there could be some opportunity there to take a part of what they have learned and to bundle it up in, in some uh, credential that could be recognized in, in the market. What What's uh, your point of view of that? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, many of these, probably millions of these students uh, were really close to finishing. So so first of all, I would say that those that are, are close to finishing that degree, whether it's a two-year associate's degree or four-year bachelor's degree, we need to figure out how to get them those, those last few credits. And, and the credits don't necessarily have to come from seat time. These students may have developed those competencies that, that could be those, those last bits um, for these degrees. So we need to figure out how to complete those um, for those, those individuals. Students that aren't maybe as far along or as close to completing, I think there is a way to, how do we credential what they know? Um, you know, we have this, this work that's called Credential As You Go, where for each small bit of learning, you may earn a certification or certificate and really helping more institutions think about credentialing along the way to a degree rather than, you know, waiting four years and then just getting one credential. How do you credential in pieces? So if you think about a student who, who is one of these some college no degree students, there's likely some marker along the way where they could have earned a credential. And let's credential what they know and what they've already earned. That along with maybe their work experience, uh, you know, their community experience, there, there are a number of competencies that could and should be for credentialed for millions uh, of these uh, students who are some college, no degree. Okay, thank you. I, I, I believe there are many um, opportunities to uh, increase uh, these numbers. I am uh, amazed what the big uh, goal that Lumina Foundation has set back in 2000. And I, I believe you're, you're uh, making uh, the, the, all the stakeholders of the higher education and uh, post-secondary education in the United States move uh, with all this data and all these initiatives that you're doing. Thank you, Corny, for your time and for sharing with us Lumina's work and your views on education success. I am sure that this talk has been fascinating and enjoyable for all the audience of the Institute of, for the Future of Education. Thanks again. Thank you so much. For more information, visit observatory.tech.mx slash edutrendspodcast and ife.tech.mx. A special thanks to Tecnológico de Monterrey, the Institute for the Future of Education, and the Tech Sounds team. Tech Sounds producer, Miguel Mejia. Edutrends producers, Esteban Venegas and Christian Gijosa. Stay tuned and play Tech Sounds in your favorite podcast app for other great shows and content.